Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on Fan of History. Back in the 640s, Dan. Uh, we still have a long way to go in the 640s. We do. We just really wrapped up the, you know, that last event was sort of, you know, straddled the 50s and the 40s. So now we're going to get into, in earnest, the rest of the 640s, kind of start the podcast like we usually do. Some housekeeping, some uh, correspondence from listeners, quotes, that kind of stuff. We love that stuff. Yeah. And we have an email from a listener. Want to take it? Um, okay, I could do it. We got an email from a listener of History in the Bible commenting on our first collaboration. That was scary in my discussion. Um, he says, I think maybe I enjoyed your conversation this time even more than previous ones, possibly because of its rootlessness. Just a wonderful, easy-to-listen, rambling conversation. My suggestion for some future collaboration between you guys is completely selfish on my part. I'm mostly interested in the history part of history in the Bible, which is to say I am interested in what the heck really happened as much as in the goings-on in the Old Testament, which I need to reread because it's amazing. So not letting us be limited to Middle Eastern history, how about conversations regarding archaeological speculations. Probably not many people know that there is a genetic pool in South America that is related to Polynesia. Probably many of us don't know that the oldest civilization in the New World is the pyramid building peoples on the coastal deserts of Peru, dating to 2000 plus BC. And then he, he left some other stuff about Donald Trump. I'll leave that out. 
So okay, let, let's not talk about Donald Trump. No. And that's signed Bruce. So I thank you, Bruce. And I agree we say about the Old Testament and how I, I'm also interested in trying to understand the history of it, which is why Gary's podcast is so great. And the Old Testament is pretty cool to read. And I'm glad you like that. That's business. why that's why I will do a couple of episodes where I actually read the entire Old Testament. So expect 200 episodes. <laughs> no, no, I don't. You could already find that. If you go on YouTube, it's amazing. It really, that's helpful because it's hard to read that stuff in the Bible. So sometimes you can listen to somebody read it. It helps. I, I've done, been doing that. I like to think that I actually mentioned the uh, uh, pyramid building people. Of the coastal deserts of Peru, when I introduced uh, the Chavin, I think the nine thirties, because they, the Chavins were the the second people with civilization in that area. And um, the genetics that we're learning today is a pretty amazing field. I, I was I, Dan and I discussed. Um, we did those interviews with the linguist and the archaeologist. So I'm, I hope you know there's history news. You know things new happen in history. Believe it or not, we find things. So. I'm hoping to continue to interview, you know, when we find something new from archaeologists and linguists and geneticists and things like that, we can get them on the show and do an interview with them. Yeah, there's been so much DNA information coming out in the last uh, 10 years. Yeah. With, uh, with especially a lot coming out in 2018 uh, and, and then on. So there's a lot of a lot of things that actually affect our time period. So Definitely. that would be awesome to do something about. Something came out recently. I, I actually reached out to them, but they were too busy for us. So. Oh, no. Yeah, what's interesting was that the Europeans related to the it being able to digest milk, it changes the timeline from the, you know, the people of the steppes, the Yanam, I can't, I can't think of it off the top of my head, it's the Yamana. People, I believe, um, it changes the whole timeline. So that was pretty interesting. Yes. So let's save that for later yeah. and uh, uh, recover from a mistake we made in the 650s. Mm-hmm. I missed the 652 Olympics. And of course, we know that half of you, uh, Final History listeners, listen to to us because you want sport news. And you're probably what happened in the 652. That's actually Dan said to me right after. What happened to the 652 Olympics? Exactly. So now you'll tell them. I will. Kratinos of Megara, he was the victory in the stadium. If you remember, Chionis of Sparta, he had won the three in a row. So I'm going to either assume he retired or he just didn't win this year. And we have... I think a 12-year career for a, for an ancient athlete is too long. So that I think he retired. I think so. Like I say, unless he didn't win it, but he, he should retire when he was ahead. I mean, yeah, remember his he, his um, record stood for, I remember, was it 180 years? That's quite an achievement. Yeah. So, and then we have uh, Kameos of Megara. He was a victor in boxing. So Megara was a good that year. They did good that year. Yeah, we don't know who won the other... The other sports. It's always like that. It's like it's you get a couple each one. I think maybe maybe like Megara was the one who, you know, we knew that was they. We found records from Megara. That's why we got those two. Yeah, some information got lost in this uh, two thousand six hundred seventy-two years. Yeah, 
They did. We have our quotes. Oh, give me a quote. I'll give you mine first. This is from Hesiod. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was a boy, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders. But the present youth are exceedingly wise and impatient of restraint. I mean, right? You could hear, <laughs> I could hear somebody saying that right now. Get off my lawn. I know. <laughs> kids today, you kids with your wheels. <laughs> yeah, but maybe maybe kids were not ever as, as bad as in the 640s. Yeah, I don't know. I remember Dan Carla mentioning how they were made fun of Caesar. They said he was a pansy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like whenever, because as I get older and my friends are older, you know, and they say stuff like that, I say, oh, please. I'm sure some caveman said, you kids with your wheels. Can you just quote Hesiod to them? Yes. I also have a Hesiod quote. So here is Hesiod saying, Badness you can get easily in quantity. The road is smooth and lies close by, but in front of excellence, the immortal gods have put sweat, and long and steep is the way to do it, and rough at first, when you come to the top, then it is easy, even though it is hard. This was much uh, wiser than the first one, I think. I think so. I mean, unless he was the first one to say the first one, so then nobody. Then after that, everybody started complaining about the kids these days. Yeah, he's kind of the the inventor of wisdom here. <laughs> but big, I, I like that uh, when it's big, like you, like how you put us working all these podcasts, right? And now yeah. you're you know you're doing well. Yeah, and I put sweat, and there was a long and steep way to do it, and it was rough at first. See? It's definitely a good quote. Let's go to everyone's favorite blind guy. Yeah. Homer. The difficulty is not so great to die for a friend as to find a friend worth dying for. Amen. I like that. Also, this quote is actually often quoted uh, from Homer. He says, the journey is its own reward. Hmm. Ancient and uh, in order for my old Magic Gathering Strat fans not to laugh, I have to repeat and say, the journey is its own reward. <laughs> I guess that's an inside joke I'm not aware of yet. Yeah, so I did um, a lot. I did 7,000 Magic the Gathering videos on YouTube. And uh, I think people were attracted to them because my English was so funny. And uh, pronouncing the letter that is the first letter in journey is very hard for Swedes. So I usually say journey. But right? I, I learned the hard way that you have to put a D in front of it. So journey. You say it good. Sometimes you slip and you'll say journey, <laughs> but like something like that. But mostly you, say, I mean, you said it right there. A card that was played a lot was Journey to Nowhere, so... Ah. Okay, enough reminiscence from the magic yeah. days. I think it goes with the quote, but the first quote you did too, right? Because he talks about the journey, you know, you put in your... The road is smooth, and then the journey is the reward. Yeah. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I like those ones. Uh, good old wise guys. Yeah, they were. All right. Let's have some context for the 640s. All right. Well, I figured the population of the world's about 66 million. Um, and that's, that's not a, a, a very big increase. It's like 30% since the year 1000 BC. Yeah, so I, I have like a census website and it has, yeah, it's like, I just sort of extrapolate as 1000 BC was maybe 50 million. Yeah. And then, uh, that's what I said in the first episode, I think. There you go. And then 500, 500 BC, they have a, I forget anyway. Yep, that's that's about where we're at. I think the, the reason is that it, the world is more civilized in 640 than it was in 1000 BC. Yes. But the bulk of the population is still in China. And China was doing fine in 1000 BC. So even though the the Middle East is doing much better in 640, that doesn't make a lot of a difference. Right. I mean, they think we don't know the city's populations in China, I guess, but Nineveh may have been the biggest city in the world at this time. Uh, I'm fairly sure it is a Chinese city. That it is must the be. Although we are going to find some war going on in China in this decade, some you know they have a tendency to well everybody seems to kill everybody in this, these years. So, <laughs> oh, it's been like that forever, I think. It has. So Nineveh maybe has a population of one hundred and twenty thousand. That's huge. I did I did an episode for my mass murder podcast where uh, we covered an historic event in Sweden in 1389 AD. And the population of Stockholm, which was already the capital city of Sweden, it had 5,000 people. So Nineveh is 44 times bigger in the 640s. It's enormous. Totally. Well, they say, isn't it, and it was in um, uh, Jonah, it gets swallowed by the whale. And, or the fish, 
in the story it says it took a few days to walk across the city to you know to do what he had to do to get to the king of Assyria a few days walk I might actually do an episode about that mass murder for final history as well because it's a fascinating story oh the one in Sweden yes for sure yeah it's a it's a racial tension in Sweden in 1389 plague too I'm sure Yeah, I think it was between plagues. Ah, gotcha. Okay, back to the 640s. Yeah. So Ashurbanipal, he was 36 in 649 when we get into the 640s. And so if he makes it to the end of this decade, uh, he will be 46. Which is funny to say because in this decade, a lot of people die. I'm just going to give you a warning. And a lot of these people are my friends since the 680s. And I've been working on a long time, so I'm going to have a little sentimental. It's interesting also that we actually know how old Ashurbanipal was, because that was information that the Assyrian kings never gave us before. Well, I figured out from the year he was born until the year it was, and that's how I figured it out. So We don't have birth years for older Assyrian kings. True. It's like that was not very important for them to document, so they didn't. Yeah. I think it goes along with this image they want to give of the Assyrian king that it's basically the same person all the time. All the kings look the same and they try to convey that they are the same person. Yeah, they do always look the same in their inscriptions, don't they? I mean, in their, you know, the, you know what I mean? Yeah, that uh, amazing beard and right. <laughs> stuff. Except Ashurbanipal has the, um, he always has the, the quill, right? And his in his, in his um, instead of a, he has a sword, but he also has the writing quills. That's because he's proud that he's the first Assyrian king that can actually read and write. Exactly. Yeah. So what else is going on in here? Well, the Assyrian control over Egypt has been slipping, and uh, Samedicus is uh, a loyal vassal uh, at the distance. He's like, "Go Assyria! I will do some other stuff here." <laughs> Uh, the Cimmerians are menacing Syria by 657, and some associated states, such as Lydia, had renounced their connections with Assyria. So the Assyrian grip over the borderlands are uh, is fading. Yes. There is a lot of stuff going on in the West, and then there's a lot of um, divination tablets are found that Ashurbanipal and the Assyrians are concerned about stuff that's happening around there, and find a lot of stuff about, you know, cutting up sheep's livers and looking at the stars. And isn't this very typical of Assyria as well? Because they were just at their greatest power ever when they had Egypt. And they won't tell us how things slipped and how they lost. Because <laughs> it's just, they never lose. So they no. just don't talk about it. They never do. They, I mean, that's the hard thing, and it was it was great when we had the Babylonian Chronicle to go by because they the Syrians do make up a lot. We, I got a lot of information in this episode from the horse's mouth from the Assyrians, but you were, were also able to you know backtrack some of that stuff with other sources to know that these things actually happen. But definitely they, I mean, they seem you know like Babylon for example. We know Sennacherib destroyed it so that what not even a bird could land in the meadow, and then it's you know it's only forty years later, and streets are choked with dead bodies. Well, they must have built it pretty quick. So they definitely make they up. You know. 
But so the Assyrian Empire is weaker, but we don't know how much weaker. Right, and it does not. I mean, going through the 640s, going through what we're going to go through now, it does not seem like it's weaker. Where do you see the stuff that's going to happen here? All right. All right. Here's the thing, though. Dating the events correctly in chronicle order was maddening, and it's basically impossible. A lot of times I like to, you know, I like to do year by year, but it's like it was hard. And then the Oriental Institute of Chicago, they're one of the foremost institutions of Mesopotamian research. They sum it up like this. So this is my excuse for not having everything perfect. Unfortunately, the modern historian... For the modern historian, the process of re-editing the accounts of events of the reign of Ashurbanipal for the greater glory of the king was also carried out to its logical conclusion. An interesting example, from what is probably the earliest document from the reign, as well as from the Babylonian Chronicle, we know that a minor expedition was conducted against Kerbit on the Elamite frontier by one of the Assyrian governors in the accession year of the king of Ashurbanipal. In cylinder B, written in 648, this becomes the king's fourth campaign. Two camp campaigns against Egypt and one against Tyre uh, preceding it. In the Rassam cylinder, the finished product in the way of the annals of the king, written sometime between 644 and 636, Kirbit is completely lost in the scramble. So we can't always go by the dates. So what you're basically saying now is that now two rambling fools will try to outdo the Oriental <laughs> Institute in Chicago. Well, thanks to Kavan and Caitlin, they helped me put this together. Kavan, one part, oh my God, poor guy, what he had to put together with some Elamite kings. Yeah, so, let's do it. Let's, let's do it. Let's outdo so. the Oriental Institute. I'm sorry? Let's outdo the Oriental yeah, Institute. Let's outdo in the Oriental Institute. And you know, make it easier because some of these scholars, they're so smart. I know what they're getting at after I've read it so many times, but it's like, oh, that didn't really explain it. Can you just break it down for me? You know? So that's, that's my, um, con our contribution to, um, civilization. We're going to break down the 640s a lot better. Okay, we are also calling out the Oriental Institute of Chicago, so you have to come onto the podcast and defend yourself. Yes, please. Well, I guess we'll start. Seriously, right that would be awesome. Um, totally. I'll get somebody for sure. So I started at 649. We say there's work on the wall of Nineveh. I mean, this, this could have happened you know, through the whole time. So we're going to put it here um, on cylinder D. Some other inscriptions here. Here's what Ashurbanipal says, but I think, Dan, you say it because you do the kings the best. Yeah, here's Ashurbanipal himself. At that time, the wall inside the city of Nineveh, which Sennacherib, king of Assyria, the father of my father, my begetter, had built, whose foundation had given way, and its turrets fallen on account of the abundant showers and heavy rain, which Adad have yearly sent up on my land during my reign, had become old, and its walls weak, its ruined parts I tore down its platform I strengthened from its foundation to its top I completely rebuilt it I made its foundation stronger than it had been before a memorial with my name inscribed upon it as well as the glory of my bravery how with the help of the gods 
And then there's a long list of gods, all of the gods, lots of gods. I marched up on the lands and established power and might. I wrote up in a, I wrote up on it and left it for days to come. It's amazing how he managed to put uh, beating up a lot of people in the inscription about how he rebuilt the walls. Exactly. You know, I was thinking that too. You know what else he kind of snuck in there when he said about Adad giving the rain? Ah. You know, because he's got whole parts in his, you know, and especially in the Rassam cylinder where he goes through the whole rain, he's got like, I mean, rain, R E I G N. Of how like oh the wheat was so tall how many tall it was during my whole time I was king because the gods loved me so much I'm the favorite of the gods. It's it's also interesting to note how he this is a defensive operation he's building the walls of Nineveh because he wants to be able to defend Nineveh but he makes it sound incredibly aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, there's, every time I try to find, I don't know if it's just old historians have in there, you know, they, some kind of an attack on Asher and Nineveh by Scythians at this time, but I find nothing on it, so I don't really want to throw it in here, but if, you know, if fans you ever read about something, you might hear it, but it doesn't seem to have a ton of evidence on some attack on the Assyrian heartland, but he did read it. It seems to be a little bit later, but maybe he could see it coming. Yeah. So, I mean, the walls, the city had a double wall and 15 gates, and the exterior walls were built with massive limestone blocks topped with step battlements, and then the inner city walls were built with unfired clay bricks. Maybe all that rain. Yeah, the rain, if they're unfired, I guess they would melt a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. This seems very defensive as well. If you're out there fighting with everybody... Also, and we're going to talk about more of his building. It's like Ashurbanipal never left. You know, like the other kings were always on campaign. He he was always home, so he probably wanted to make sure he was nice and safe while he was there. Yeah, he was hanging out in the library. That too. And, and, and his home and all that other stuff. So, I'm going to just move on to 648. We have a little cool little event. Maybe you guys could do this in your astronomy podcast too, because... Archilochus of Paros. Now, we've talked about Archilochus before. He's credited to have chronicled the first uh, Greek solar eclipse sighting. And this was April 6, 648 BC. After I said I can't date things, I got to attack one. Cool. So I love those uh, solar eclipses because you can actually verify them with mathematical models. That is correct. Sometimes they call it the Archilochus Eclipse. He says, Nothing can be surprising anymore or impossible or miraculous now that Zeus, father of the Olympians, has made night out of noonday, hiding the bright sunlight, and fear has come upon mankind. After this, men can believe anything, expect anything. Apparently left a profound impact on him. And obviously he did not understand astronomy. No. We will talk more about Archilochus at the end of the decade. Sweet. Now sports. We have sports. There's a, this is a big one here. Big Olympiad. Okay. 648 BC Olympics is the 33rd Olympiad. And Kavan, help me with this one. Thank you, Kavan. Two new events. 
the Kellis and the Pancration. Hmm. Have you heard of these? Uh, Pancration I know a lot about, but yeah. the Kellis I know nothing I about. I figured you wouldn't that one. Well, they both have a military implications, we'll see. And the Kellis was a horse race with a single rider on a horse. So instead of like a chariot, it was just like a rider. Okay. I mean, no, no, so no. it's a horse race. It's a horse race. Yeah, but not with a chariot. So it's a rider. I mean, you got to remember, this is 640s BC, right? So this, there's not a lot of cavalry. So it looks like no, this is why. We don't have saddles. Right, right. Well, but we have saddles, we don't have stirrups. That's true, too. I found a whole paper on this then, too. But you know, the Greeks were riding horses into battle. They were maybe starting to use them for cavalry, but also just riding them in, you know, getting getting there like that. So obviously it became, you know, the horse is starting to get used more. I mean, we know the Scythians and the uh, horse archers from, you know, the steppes are using them, and we see the Assyrians were using horses, and we'll see more about that in this episode as well. I should say this decade. Yes. Should I talk, tell about this prostitute? What do you think? Yes. Okay, so this is a side note. There's So Greek prostitutes, they sometimes set their prices according to how many sexual positions they mastered. And one who had mastered 12 positions charged the most for one called the Kellis, <laughs> meaning it was a horse race in which the woman was on the top. That's all the detail I'll go into that. I have so many questions. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> Which are the 12 positions? Well, and uh, how do they master them? Do they Are they certified in some way? Okay, let's leave it. <laughs> we will. We can maybe we do a special episode on that. Yeah, we should call that episode The Kellis. Yeah, The Kellis. I think History on Fire did an episode on sex in Rome or sex in the ancient world. I have to check that one out. Yes. So here's the thing, this neck, the pancreation's kind of long. I mean, we could squeeze it in this episode, or maybe we'll talk to you guys about it next time. Oh, let's talk about it. Let's do it now? All right, let's do it. Let's not leave them hanging. So, and you know some about it too, right? So it means, pancreation means all strength. It's basically like ancient MMA. It's really, you know, more like an extreme version of the all-in wrestling that they were doing. And we know they brought boxing in the 680s, so maybe they're like, boxing, that's not enough. Let's, you know, full-blown MMA. So they fought completely naked. In addition to the boxing and wrestling attacks, it was permitted to kick the opponent anywhere on his naked body, to twist his limbs out of their sockets, to break his fingers, and or apply a stranglehold to his neck. Only biting and gouging were not allowed, but apparently in Sparta, both were. This is exactly like uh, the UFC won, except for uh, for you couldn't uh, do small joint manipulation, so you couldn't break fingers, but all other things were allowed here. And right before the UFC started in 93, uh, there was a thing called the King of Pancrase, Ah. In uh, in Japan, taking the name for from Pancration with somewhat similar rules, but that was more of a show. Yeah, I see. Sometimes they'll call Pancration when I watch. You know, on ESPN they'll say that Pancration's coming on. I have to tell you a story about Pancration. Tell me. In the uh, in the uh, in the eighties, I was doing a lot of martial arts, 
and uh, nobody knew which uh, martial art was the best as the UFC had not started yet mm-hmm. so we all had our ideas about our own martial art being the best and I was doing Nimpo Taijutsu okay. and uh, we had a uh, a guy who was a uh, fifth degree black belt, the, the highest ranked guy in uh, Europe, and he was from Greece. And he was he also claimed that he was a master of pancreation. <laughs> and at some point we were doing stretching, and I was trying to sit with my feet, uh, with my, the soles of my feet together, and then trying to push my knees into the ground so that I would be able to do all the moves later. And this Greek guy, he just looked at me from behind, <laughs> and then he jumped on my knees, oh! pressing them into <laughs> into the mat. And he must have known what he was doing because I got a more a lot more agile. <laughs> 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 he scared the bejesus out of me. So that was an interesting um, experience. But he, he he talked a lot about pancreation. Yeah, they, I did find that the Greek some in the seventies. I think the, they're kind of the ones. Some somebody from Greece brought it back. Yeah, I think he must have been uh, involved. I can't remember his name now. I have it in somebody's name in here. We'll, I'll get to that. Actually, maybe it's him. Let's see, his name Jim Arvantis. No. The Neo Pancration was introduced to the martial arts community by um, a. Oh, he was an American, Greek-American, Jim Arvantis, in 1969. Yeah, I guess this guy must have been doing it since the 70s. Yeah, apparently it was on the cover of like a martial arts magazine, and that's how it got started getting popular. Interesting. Yeah, so that guy did it, and also it's um, Greek mythology, says Heracles, that's he, Heracles used to be Hercules, and, and Theseus, they uh, used pancreation um, when they fought their mythical opponents. Theseus said he used his extraordinary pancreation skills to defeat the Minotaur in the labyrinth. So yeah, Heracles, he defeated the Nemean lion using pancreation. And he was often depicted on ancient artwork like vases and stuff doing that. In case you're wondering what the Nemean lion was, he was a vicious monster that lived in Nemea, thus the name, he could not be killed with mortal weapons because his golden fur was impervious to attack and his claws were sharper than any mortal sword and they could cut through any armor. So when Heracles found the lion, he shot at it with his bow and he discovered this, that he couldn't, you know, the arrow bounced harmlessly off of the um, lion's thigh. So after some time, he got the lion to return to his cave. I'm not really sure how he did that, maybe through some meat in there or something. But the cave had two entrances, so Heracles blocked one of them, and then he went in the other one, and then in the dark quarters, he stunned the beast with his club. Then, during the fight, the lion bit off one of his fingers. He eventually strangled the lion with his bare hands, thus using the pancreation skills. Uh, As you do when you meet an uh, invulnerable monster. Yeah, inside of a cave that you go in after with them. I guess the club worked, so and it's choking him. So yeah. anyway, uh, he couldn't he couldn't even uh, cut his he couldn't cut through him with his knife. So uh, Athena came and saw that he needed help, so he used one of the lion's claws and skinned him. And then after that, everybody in the town was afraid of Heracles. They're like the king of who made him do those things said something like, 
All right, the rest of your things, you got to stay away. Everybody's afraid of you. You're coming you know, into town with this lion skin on you. Anyway, yeah. back to the sport. So, like in ancient boxing, in the, in the Olympics, there was no weight divisions, no time limits. So, it's just, you know, whoever you got in the draw, that's who you fought until it was over. And it was pretty much the same as MMA, jiu-jitsu, that kind of thing. There's punches mm. like boxing. Um, the fighter stances, and you'll know this, Dan, like it's more like a kickboxer stance. Like in boxing, we stayed at a, at a pretty uh, strict angle. But I know in kickboxing, you sort of more of a 45-degree angle, right? So you can kick yeah. grab. I thought this was interesting, though, too. One of the biggest, and you'll see it on vases and stuff a lot, they do a, uh, they use the bottom of your foot to kick in the stomach. I know I did a little Muay Thai, and that's like a teep. That one, did you yeah, know that? A front kick. Yeah. Sort of like use the bottom of your foot and push. Yes. Yeah, it's a good jab. So that was common. They also had a ground game. They had locking, choking techniques like jujitsu, shoulder locks, arm bars, tracheal grip, rear naked choke, all kind of stuff like that. This would have been my favorite sport to watch during the Olympics. I bet. Oof. I don't know if any other um, civilizations had anything like this. You know, they, they found that the Egyptians had some kind of traditional wrestling, but not this more violent. No. It was definitely part of Greek training, though, right? It was said the Spartans used, they fought at Thermopylae with their bare hands and teeth when their swords and spears broke. Of course they did. Of course, because, you know, they're Spartans. <laughs> uh, Herodotus mentions in the battle, a battle between the Greeks and the Persians in 479, that the Greeks who fought best were Athenians, and the Athenian who fought best was a distinguished Pancratiast. Philip the Great, Philip II, I should say, Alexander the Great's father, he is described practicing Pancration with his soldiers while his soldiers are watching. So I, I, I wonder if this is one of the reasons why the Greeks were so good at war. I think uh, this is a good reason, but uh, not in the way you think, because the Greeks are inventing so much stuff. Mm -hmm. So they, they think out of the box again. Yeah. I mean, although we do know that the Assyrians had those big calves and forearms, so I don't know how they were getting them. But... Uh, good for other people to grapple. Yeah. Good for those chokes, though, with those forearms. Well, maybe it's easier to uh, prevent the forearm from going under your neck. Yeah, that too. Or if you shoot if them they, if they're big. Way before you get that close. But wait, one last story. This is a wild story. I love this one. So there was a Pancration fighter named... Arikon, Arikion of Figalia. He won the Pancration in 572. That was his first year that he was champion. But in 568, he won despite being dead. What? <laughs> so in 568, his opponent locked him in a chokehold. And so desperate to loosen it, he broke his opponent's toe. And then the opponent nearly passed out from pain and submitted. And as the referee raised Archaeocon's hand, they discovered that he had died from the chokehold. And they crowned his body with the olive wreath, and he returned as a hero, a dead hero. 
Oh, he gave it his best. <laughs> he gave it all. He left it. Wait, yes. He left it all on the field. <laughs> he sure did. I'm happy to hear that you could actually submit. Yeah. In pancreation, that makes it a little more humane. Yeah, a little bit more. You could break their finger, and you, yeah, I mean, seriously, we I mean, just keep breaking their fingers and stuff, and then until you just, you know, your, all your arms are broken out. So. Rough for the next match. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people didn't live as long either. So I guess, you know, I guess if you're 25 and you're fighting, you think you only have 10 years to go, maybe. Yeah, I wonder what the average lifespan was in Greece at this time. But uh, I'm sure it wasn't. It was rare with old people. Exactly. We will see later in uh, more well-documented Roman times that people actually lived uh, a long time. But the average lifespan was a lot shorter. Correct. Yeah, you could live to be 70 or 80. It's not like... Or 100. Or, or yeah, or 100. I mean, or you could be like Moses and Methuselah and live to be like 800, but... Um, uh, no. No. So... Do we have any winners for 648? We do. So there's we have five champions. We have um, Gyges. Not our Gyges. This is a different Gyges. Gyges of Laconian. He won the stadium. And the guy who won the pancreation, his name was, you could say his name. Lygdamis of Syracuse. Yes. He won the, the pancreation. And then Myron, also known as the tyrant of Syracuse, he was the victor in the chariot racing. Oh, good work, Myron. Mm-hmm. And then one other one is... Crocsidas. Yeah. The Cranonian of Cranon. That's a good name. He was in the victory in the Kellis. That's the horse race Kellis, not the prostitute sex thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I reacted to Lygdemis of Syracuse. So then Syracuse is, the colony is big enough to send someone to the Olympics. Yeah. And win the pancreation. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I think you noted it, and you noted somewhere that it won't be long until the Syracuse and you know start getting more involved in wars and stuff in that area, right? Yes, they will be an important city for a long time. For sure, for sure. So yeah, that's the 648 Olympics, and I think that should wrap it up for this episode. All right. Yeah. Uh, next time we'll have some wars. Yeah, now we're going to get into some wars. They pr- we have the Greeks practicing for wars, and now we're going to have some some good old Syrian wars. So make sure you tune in next time. Make real war and not practice. Yeah, exactly. Quite. See you next time. Okay, see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.